Well, good morning. How are we? Good. Hey, my name is Trent Thompson. I'm the senior pastor here at West Shore. We want to remind you guys, before we get into the Word today, I want to remind you about Baptism Sunday, our annual celebration, our baptism celebration, coming up September 10th. We want to let you know about it now so you can be considering uh, coming forward to be baptized. Now, I was thinking about that this week, and I just want to encourage you, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have made a decision to trust Him, place your faith in Him, One of the commands we've been given in Scripture is to be baptized. Jesus says to do that. So that's the most obvious reason that we would want to obey that. It's just say, look, if Jesus tells us to do something, we want to obey. Right, church? That should be much louder. (laughs) Right? I mean, if Jesus says do something, you want to do it. But one of the other thoughts that I was just pondering and considering this week is how necessary baptism is as a tool for missions in our day and in our age and our time. Baptism really is a bold public proclamation that you belong to Jesus, that you are His, that you have put all your weight on Him. Everything is about Him. Life is His. Everything you want to do is about following Him. And baptism is a way of publicly proclaiming that, that you've received new life in Him and you've been brought into a new family and made a new person. And I'll tell you, friends, Our world needs nothing more than it needs people who will boldly follow Jesus. That's the greatest act of service you can give to our city, is to be a person who says, I will give a bold proclamation of following Jesus. That's who I want to be, not a shy or sheepish one. Our city doesn't need that. They've got plenty of that. Our city, the place we live, the place God has called us to minister, the place he sent us, is a place that needs people who will boldly proclaim that they belong to him and want to live for him and walk with him. And baptism is a way that you do that. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you have not been baptized, we want to encourage you to be praying about that. Consider that. If you want to be baptized, there's a couple things you can do to get yourself signed up to do that. You can head to the welcome desk right outside these doors afterwards and let them know, hey, I want to be contacted about being baptized and we will get in touch with you as a church staff. You can also call us at the church anytime during the week during regular office hours or uh, you can shoot us an email and we would be happy to get you signed up and talk with you about the steps that we'll take towards baptism. So we wanted you to be aware of that. I also want to do a little bragging if I could this week. How many of you knew that Vacation Bible School happened this week? So if you knew about that and maybe you didn't, but... Man, I was so proud of our kids. One, our volunteers were phenomenal. It was a great week. They were up here late every night, working hard, investing in our kids and just pouring their lives into them. And it was really a blast. And Terry and his whole team, uh, Lindsay McConaughey in particular, just did a fantastic job, just off the charts, so great. Uh, But what I want to brag on is our kids. They were, as part of their goal for the week, they were raising money, uh, bringing money out of their you know, piggy banks and whatnot to raise money to put a roof on a church in the Dominican Republic, a place where we've got a relationship with that goes back many years. And their goal was $4,000. You want to know how much our kids raised? Over $7,000 just out of, you know. Yeah, so I was just astounded by their generosity. I know many of them were emptying out the piggy banks and foregoing that toy that they wanted so that they could give towards this end. And I'm sure some parents, I'm sure some of you dug into your wallets too. I doubt there were $7,000 in the piggy banks. Uh, so thank you for supporting your kids and teaching them generosity and leading them in that. I'm always astounded to watch our kids. And our kids lead us in that way, don't they? They teach us and instruct us. So hey, we're going to dive into God's Word. Before we do, why don't you stand and greet some folks around you. Say Hello.
Right. Let me pray for us. And Father, we come to your word now and we trust that it is good and that it's right and that it's true. And we want to submit ourselves to all that it teaches us. In particular today, Father, we want to be reminded that it teaches us that we are steeped in pride. That we have rebelled against you, the rightful king of all things. That we have not given you the worship, the love, the affection, the obedience that you are worthy of. And a great reason for that is because we believe we know better, because we are ingrained in pride and we need you to come and impart humility to us. I pray that you would teach us today, Father, that humility is not um, a nice thing if we can attain it. Humility is necessary and it can't be attained just through sheer willpower. We need you, Holy Spirit, to give us the gift of humility, to pour it into us. And that begins by acknowledging and admitting that we are not humble. I pray today that you would instruct us and teach us, and that you would teach us what it is to walk in humility, so that we might know you and experience closeness to you, and that your power might be poured through us. Make us a humble people. We admit that we have not been too many times, and we pray that you would make us so. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are <clears throat> closing up our summer series, which we've been calling Deep Lives. You can see it on the screen there. Uh, we've been talking about the kind of character that we think a follower of Jesus is, is meant to possess. And you know, as a church, we have measures that we measure our success by as a church, and they're not measures of dollars in the bank and not measures of the number of people in the seats. They're measures of the kind of people that we're becoming. Uh, whether we're becoming the kinds of people that, that believe what God's word says, what we call deep truth, whether we're people who have a deep love for the city that God has placed us in and live on mission, and whether, it's, whether our lives are marked by that, and also whether we're growing in the character that God calls us to have, what we call deep lives, so deep truth, deep lives, deep love. And so we've been examining these 10 core character traits that we think are so pivotal for the mission of God in our city and, and many cities, um, that those things would be formed in us. And every week, the interesting challenge for me this summer has been, we're asking the question, the very simple question is, how do we grow in and then fill in the blank with the character trait of the week? How do we grow in being loving? How do we grow in being faithful? And every week, the challenge is, uh, you might feel this too, when you hear it preached, you think, man, I'm not that. I have so far to go. Do you, do you feel that when we come together. I feel that as your pastor when I come to try and preach it to you. Um, when we come and say, all right, we need to grow in these things. And so the goal is not to say that we believe we'll attain to perfection in any of these things, but that we want to be a people who are increasing and growing in the measure in which we possess these character traits. So we've talked about a lot of them. We're going to wrap that up this, this Sunday uh, with our last core character trait, which we'll get to in just a moment. But I wanted to just chart a course for you guys because I know that often I'm, I'm interested, uh, whenever I've been a part of a church, I'm always interested to kind of know where we're going next. So as we wrap up this series in about two weeks, when we get into the fall, I wanted you to know where we're going to head. We are going to spend the next about year in the book of Isaiah. We are going to study the book of Isaiah. If a year sounds like a long time to you, I promise you it's not enough to cover the book of Isaiah. So we, we are going to walk through the book. And let me just kind of give you a preview of what that's going to look like. We are going to be exploring the grandeur, the bigness, the holiness, and the otherness of our God. 
and how profoundly astounding he is. And then we are going to marvel at his mercy for people like us. That's what Isaiah is all about. And so it's 60 plus chapters. Uh, so we're going to spend a good amount of time in it. We'll take some breaks here and there to talk about some other things from time to time. So we'll take a break around Easter. We'll take a break around Christmas to do some other things. We'll also do some stuff around sanctity of life during the year. So won't be just, you know, 60 straight weeks in the book, but we will um, make our way through the book methodically. Now, you know, as a church, we we believe that God's word is all true, right? Every, every jot of it, every syllable of it is true. And so what we want to do is just methodically make our way through that word and let it teach us and instruct us and not sidestep the hard stuff. I'm just going to tell you there are whole sections of Isaiah that if I were picking, I would sidestep those suckers, man, because they're tough. But we're going to walk through it. I hope that just, just so you can kind of be preparing yourself, if you want to in your devotional time, just start reading through Isaiah. Uh, that would be a great thing to do. There's some great precept studies out there on the book of Isaiah. If you want to dive into those, it might be a good little warm-up for what we'll do uh, together as a church family. So wanted you to know about that. Be aware of it. Let's turn our attention now to the character trait that is upon us today. We are going to talk about humility. Humility. And humility is such a big subject, and it can be really challenging. But I've mastered it, so you are in good hands today. <laughs> we are, like, ready to go. I felt like when I read this this week, oh, humility covered, good. Um, oh, man, I, that's what happens when you <laughs> tell lies in the pulpit. Hopefully sarcastic humor does not preclude being able to preach on humility. So let's do this. It's a huge subject. You know, in one sense, all of the Bible, right? So we're going to get into this right at the beginning here, but the, you know, the origin of all sin in the universe, in our world, is pride, right? Adam and Eve choosing to disregard God, to want to be God themselves, to take his position, his role. And so pride leads to sin. And then really, so you can look at the entire biblical story in some senses, every, every story, every command that comes after that is God redeeming a world from their pride. Is God trying to impart humility and making war on pride? Every story in the Bible can be viewed through that lens. And so where do you go when you want to talk about humility? I mean, there's a lot of places that you can go to talk about how do we grow in humility? How do we become people who are, who are humble? And so we're going to look at a couple different places. I want to give you four sort of general observations about pride and humility. Four general observations. Uh, they won't even come close to being the tip of the tip of the iceberg about what the Bible has to say about humility. And then I want to try and give you three ways that you can practically grow in humility. Just three strategies for beginning to grow uh, or continuing to grow in humility. So let's do that. General observations about humility and pride. If you've got the sermon notes, they're in there. You can jot those down. We'll put them up on the screen as well. The first observation is this, is that pride is more deeply ingrained in us and more dangerous than we understand. It's more deeply ingrained in us than we understand, and it's more dangerous than we understand. As, as I was thinking this week, I think this is a, essentially how I approach pride often, and my guess is you might approach it the same way, is we approach it as sort of a necessary inconvenience. Now, let me explain what I mean by that, because you might think I don't think of pride as necessary. I think of it as bad. But I think we, if we really were to look at our actions and the way we kind of move through life, I think we think of pride as more of a necessary inconvenience than as something to make war against in us. And the reason I say that is this, 
is because I think that we recognize that pride has bad side effects that we don't really love, right? Like we might talk about ourselves too much. We might be off-putting to some of our friends. We might, you know, from time to time antagonize some folks and we don't like that that happens because we're proud. But we also secretly don't want to let go of it because we see that it often propels us into getting the things we want. Pride produces a particular kind of ambition in us. And that ambition often leads us to making more money, to having positions of privilege and power in our places of work or in our communities. Pride often feels like, I think, a necessary inconvenience with its side effects because it ultimately gets us where we want to go, the things that our hearts crave. If we crave the praise of people, often pride will enable us to get the praise of people because we will do things to get that praise because of the ambition that pride births in us. So that's why I say pride is, I think, we think of it as a necessary inconvenience. But we imagine, I think, that we can measure the dosage of pride, right? So I'll have just as much pride as is required to get the things that I want to get, right? But we can quit any time, Right? I'll take a little dosage of it now to get the thing that I want to get, to get the position I need to get, to make the money I need to make, to get the girl I want to get or whatever it is that I need to get. I'll, I'll take that dose of pride, but I can, you know, I can quit any time. Friends, we have an epidemic of pride. It's not, it's not an epidemic, it's a pandemic because it affects every person who's ever lived. That's, this is the worst disease. We have an opioid epidemic in our state and in our country right now. It pales in comparison to the epidemic we have when it comes to pride. There is not a person who has ever walked on the planet that has not been infected by this disease. Every single one. Don't fool yourself. Don't kid yourself. It is more deeply ingrained in you than you can imagine. I alluded to Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve choose to disregard who God is and to say we, we want to have our eyes opened and to be able to determine for ourselves what is good and what is evil. We don't want God to dictate that to us any longer. And so as, as their ancestors, as the ancestors of Adam and Eve, that pride, that penchant for pride is handed to us. We receive it in our very blood. It's a disease that we are born into. And so when I say it's more deeply ingrained in us than we know, that's really what I mean is that it's there and it raises its ugly head at every turn and around every corner. It is subtle at points and it is blatantly obvious at points, but it is there. Now, in a very real sense, what we can say, as I alluded to, is that we can say that really pride is the root of all of our sin. It's the root of every difficulty that we experience. Um, let me give you a couple of examples, right? Lying. We think of lying is a sin, and it is. But lying, what is it? It's the result of pride convincing us that we cannot be seen to either lack knowledge or to admit that we are wrong. That's why you lie. Because you can't be seen to not know or to admit that you were wrong. And so you lie. And that's pride. Stealing. Stealing is pride convincing us that we deserve what we do not have and someone else has. And so we take it. Failing to love, being unloving, is pride convincing us that we are the right center of our affections as opposed to another. Self-pity. You might think, how is self-pity the result of pride? Well, self-pity comes when we don't get the praise and the recognition and the acknowledgement that we think we deserve for the things that we have suffered and given up, for the sacrifices we have made. And when they're not acknowledged, what do we do? 
We move into this mode of feeling self-pity. And what is self-pity coming from? It's coming from ultimately the pride of belief that we should get recognized for the thing that we did. Friends, the Bible even paints at points anxiety as the result of pride. That anxiety is the belief that we should be able to control what will happen next in our lives. And because we can't, we worry and are filled with anxiety. And God says, who are, who are you? This is in Isaiah. God says, who are you to fear as if you had control over what will happen next? I am the God of all gods. I exist in sovereign power over the entire universe and you are mine. Your anxiety is a result of your pride and belief that you somehow should have control over all this. Pride is more deeply ingrained in us than we can possibly imagine. And I say pride is more dangerous than we understand because it cuts us off from closeness with God and from the exaltation he promises to those who will humble themselves. You may have heard this phrase if you've read your Bible a bit. This idea that God what? He humbles the proud and he what? Exalts the humble. Right? That's a promise that is made four different times in the New Testament. Right? It's, it's in fact one of the key ways that Jesus motivates us to humble ourselves. He says, look, when you're humble, I will exalt you. If you exalt yourself, then I'm going to humble you. So what's the danger of pride? The danger of pride is that it moves God's hand to humble us, to have to put his hand harshly upon us or hardly upon us. And it, it creates a lack of closeness with God. We think of pride as a mere inconvenience. It is a danger of all dangers. Church, do you understand? Are you with me? It's a danger of all dangers. And we first have to acknowledge that pride is that dangerous and it's that deeply ingrained if we're going to do anything about it. Because like anything else in our lives, when we believe something is merely inconvenience, then we just put it off to the side and we think, I'll deal with that later because it's just inconvenient. It's not that big a problem, right? If you've got a minor cough, you don't head to the ER. You just think to yourself, it's just a cough. I'll get over it. It's an inconvenience. But when you know cancer is in the bones, you are immediately headed to the doctor, right? You're not going to say, oh, that's merely an inconvenience. Pride is the cancer in the bones. It is not the insignificant cough. Observation number two. Humility is the conviction that all your privileges as God's loved one are to be used for others, not yourself. Let me say that again. Humility is the conviction that all your privileges as God's loved one are to be used for others, not yourself. I'm going to point you to a little book here. This is, this is a small, I know I recommend a lot of reading. I don't expect that you're going out and buying every book that I recommend, okay? But I keep recommending because from time to time, maybe one of them will strike your fancy. Uh, but this one is probably one that belongs on every shelf. Uh, this is Andrew Murray's Humility. You can see it's small. It's, you know, maybe 100 pages or so. But it is rich. I mean, look, if you write a book and you title it Humility, you better know what you're talking about. All right? And Andrew Murray does. He has a lot to say. Um, this is probably the most influential read on humility that I've ever picked up. It's absolutely phenomenal. has a lot to teach about it. In it, he offers a definition of humility. Now, I'm offering you with this uh, what I hope is, is, is as pragmatic a definition of humility as we can get at. And it's not a very common one. I, and I'll tell you why. Um, because humility is a hard concept to get our hands around. Like I said, throughout the Bible, you can go anywhere and see a lot of like, this is what humility looks like when it's displayed. It's displayed in serving others. Um, humility is the result of a number of different things. You know, it's a perspective in the mind. It's actions that you take. And so really, in a sense, whenever you talk about humility, you're trying to define it. You're really just, you're kind of turning the prism and looking through that prism at one different angle 
of humility, and then you can turn it, and you can look at another angle of humility, and you can turn it again and see a third, right? And a couple definitions that are regularly offered of humility, these are pretty common ones, is seeing ourselves rightly in light of who God is, right? So seeing who I am in light of who God is, that's a pretty common defin- definition of humility. And it's a good one because it addresses that vertical relationship with, that we have with God, right? Versus that horizontal relationship with others where we're saying, okay, seeing myself in light of who God is, is at least a part, a big part of what it means to be humble. Andrew Murray defines it this way in his book, and I think it's helpful. The disappearance of self in the conviction that God is all. The disappearance of self in the conviction that God is all. What Andrew is getting at there is the idea that to acquire humility, and we're going to talk about this in just a little bit, to acquire humility, you need to not just sort of know how grievous your sin is. You need to know how great God is. And you need to desire that he would become everything. And when you desire that he would be everything, you start to forget about yourself. You start to worry less about yourself. You start to be concerned less about what privileges you'll get or where you'll be placed or how he'll use you or what things might be brought to you as blessings and gifts. And you start to just worry completely and solely that he would be exalted and seen as all by everyone. That's what Andrew's getting at. And a lot of his book addresses that idea. But here's, here's the definition I'm offering you, is that humility is the conviction that all of your privileges as God's loved one, as God's child, if you've come to him by faith, you're his child. That all of those privileges are to be used for others, not yourself. Let me tell you where that comes from. Turn to Philippians chapter 2 if you've got your Bibles with you. Otherwise, we'll put it up on the screen. This may be a familiar passage to you. It's probably the, the clearest New Testament teaching on humility. This is a hymn, verses 1 through 11, or essentially verses 4 through 11, are a hymn that Paul is writing, a New Testament hymn. Verses 1 through 4, I'm just going to summarize them for you. Verses 1 through 4, Paul is calling for the church at Philippi to be united and to be humble. He is saying, humble yourselves and be unified. And then, in sort of following through on that command, that's what he wants them to be and wants them to do. And then following through on that, in verse 5, he says... Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or some versions say, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying, if you want to be humble, the command I just gave you in verses 1 through 4, if you want that to happen, it's going to involve a mindset. It's going to involve taking up a conviction in the mind that existed in Jesus. And I like the way the ESV translates it here because what they're saying to us is this is a mindset that belongs to you already in Christ. Now that's a little hint at how we begin to walk in humility because one of the things he's telling us is if you're in Christ, this mindset belongs to you, whether you've appropriated it or not, uh, enough or not, whether you're operating from that mindset is a different thing. But it's not something outside of you that has to be grasped and brought in. It's something that if you are in Christ has been brought into you in that he lives inside of you. And this is his mind. And he delights to give it to you. Do you see that, church? Have this mind in yourselves, right? Have this conviction in yourselves that is yours in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 6, kind of the crux of the whole thing, he says this. Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, who though he was in the form of God. Now, 
some people read this and they wrestle with it because the language is a little bit hard. And I'll just let you know that the Greek, which is the original language this was written in, is a little bit challenging as well. It's not always the clearest, uh, but here's the best understanding of what he means when he says, though he was in the form of God. The form of God is not like he had a veneer of God, right? Sometimes we can read that and say, oh, like he looked like God. He, he had the form or the sort of appearance of God. Like he put on some clothes that made him look like God, so to speak, right? Like, like an impersonator that would dress up like Elvis or an impersonator that would dress up like whoever else someone would want to impersonate. I don't know, right? But that's not what the form of God means. The idea of being in the form of God is to say that he possessed the mode of existence of God. That's the literal of the Greek. The mode of existence of God. In other words, the form and the essence, the, the function and the essence. That's what this word means. When he says in verse 6, he possessed the form. He was, though he was in the form of God, he's saying he was in the function and in the essence of God. In other words... He was God. Okay, are you with me? So though he was God in the form of God, though he was divine, he did not consider equality with God, right, being, being God, something to be grasped. And sometimes people read that and they think, oh, it's, it's teaching us that Jesus was not fully God, that he was not divine. In fact, he didn't even consider being divine something to go after, but that's not what it's saying. It's saying that he was God, but did not see his equality with God or his oneness with God as something to be used for his own advantage. That's what that word means. When it says to grasp, to strive after, try and, to try and grab it and hold on to it, what we're, what we're hearing there is that Jesus did not see his divinity as something to be used for his advantage, but for the advantage of others. Now do you see where I'm getting my definition from? That every privilege we have as those who are loved by God in Christ is not to be used for our advantage, but for the advantage of others. Because that's what Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 is telling us was the marker of the humility of Jesus. That he did not use his privileged position as God in the flesh for his own advantage, but used it for who? But used it for us. He laid down all of his rights, and he had rights. He laid them down. He didn't empty himself of any divinity. He never became less than divine, always perfectly divine, but not using that divinity for his own advantage, but for ours, choosing to lay down his life for us. So now, here's what that means. That's the essence of humility. So if the essence of humility is to be convicted or to be convinced that all of our privileges— are to be used for the benefit of others and not ours. Let's just trace that out practically. What does that really look like? It looks like the fact that our spiritual gifts, that's a privilege we receive when we're in Christ, right? Spiritual gifts of leadership or wisdom or teaching. How are they to be used? For what are they to be used? For the building up of the body, for the building up of others, not for ourselves. Every spiritual gift you possess is not for you. It's for those around you. <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says that we are a kingdom of, of priests, that we are a royal priesthood. In other words, what a priest is, is someone who represents others to God, right? Goes to God on behalf of others. And when Peter says that that's who we are, that we're a priesthood, that's a privilege that we've received in Jesus. And what that means is that our privilege to be priests, 
to be representatives before God is something that we are to use on behalf of others. So our prayers are to be deeply steeped in praying for others so that they might come to God and walk with him. Our prayer life is not meant to be marked by, uh, God, would you give me this? And would you do that for me? And would you, would you pour this gift into me? And would you allow me to have this? Our prayer lives are meant to be harnessed for the good of others. That's what it means to be a priest in the, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament sense. It means the privilege of, and I think this is a big one, <clears throat> the privilege of hope and comfort in suffering that we have. Do you know that we have a privilege One of our privileges as the loved children of God is that in our suffering, we have immense hope and we have immense comfort. Think back to our journey through the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, when he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we might comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted. That's the word comfort a lot. But what does that verse mean? What are those verses teaching us? The comfort that we receive as a privilege of being, as being a child of the king. We receive comfort in the midst of our affliction and our suffering. He draws near to us. He says, I know I have suffered. I have suffered. You are not alone in your suffering. That, outside of Jesus, what hope is there in suffering? What meaning is there in persecution, in difficulty? What hope do you find outside of Jesus in the midst of cancer, in the midst of calamity? When the car crash takes the life, what hope do you find? The privilege of the children of God is to share the comfort that we have in Jesus Christ in the midst of our suffering so that others might be comforted. See, that might be the most obvious one where we would think, oh, no. The comfort we receive, surely that's just God loving us so much that he's just going to comfort us. And 2 Corinthians chapter 1 just turns that right on its head and says, no, no, no. Even that privilege, even that great intimate privilege of the comfort that you receive when you walk through difficulty is not really ultimately for you. It's so that you might turn around and comfort those who are in any affliction with the same comfort with which you have been comforted. Last one I thought of was this. Well, it's a group of things, really. Our house, our job, our family, our car, our education. It's all for someone else. It's all for others. The mark of humility is seeing that every privilege we have, every gift, every blessing from above, everything that God pours into us, everything that we have as a result of being his children is to be used not for our own advantage, but for the advantage of others. That's what Philippians 2.6 tells us humility is and how Jesus displayed it. And it's how we're meant to display it as well. That's my best effort is giving, giving you the most practical definition and understanding of humility I can give you. Because I think some of the other definitions are very pie in the sky. They're kind of up here, right? And they're good. It's good to remember like the, the forgetfulness of self in the conviction that God would be all, right? The Andrew Murray thing. That's good. I love that definition. But when I hear it, I don't know if you're like me, I go, what does that mean? Like, how does that happen? But when I think, okay, practically, am I looking at every privileged position that I have, my opportunity to be a pastor, my privilege of being a husband, being a dad, my privilege of having a home, my privilege of having a car to drive around, am I looking at those things as something to be utilized for the good of others 
Or am I looking at that as something that's just really for me? And I think the, the answer tells me about my growth in humility. So that's what I wanted to give to you today. Now, let's make observation number three now then. Or before we move on, let me say this. Just remind us. Humility isn't simply not bragging about yourself and it's not just thinking too highly of yourself. It's being convicted that you are the object of God's love and that everything you receive as the object of his love is to be used for the good of someone else. And I'm harping on that. But here's the, here's the good news about that, by the way, church. It means that the pathway to humility is not just in sort of being aware of how bad a sinner you are. It's also in being aware of how good God is to pour his mercy out upon you. When you think of the mercy of God, that's what humbles you. More than just being like, I'm terrible, I'm awful, I'm horrible. Which if you already struggle with a sense of self-worth, if you already struggle to find a sense of self-worth, that can just be crushing, right? But he doesn't just say, I mean, Paul in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 does say, look, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So certainly there's a piece of humility that comes from reminding ourselves that we are the chief of sinners, that's certainly a part of it. But we're not just left there to grow in humility by constantly beating on our, on our nastiness. Just like, oh, I'm terrible, I'm terrible, I'm terrible. And that will grow my humility. There's a piece of it that is reminding ourselves that we are sinners. But the other piece of it is to go, oh, the mercy of God and the goodness of God and the privileged position that I've received in Christ before God. That's what ultimately humbles us. Because we say, oh, that I would be given this privileged position is astounding. It's, it's unheard of. I, I don't belong in this kind of position, and yet I have it as one of Christ's redeemed ones. Observation number three. Humility means emptying ourselves of the idea that God owes us any good thing. That's pretty straightforward, right? Humility means emptying ourselves of the idea that God owes us any good thing. That's what chapter 2 verse 7 in Philippians is saying. Look at, look at how it says this. It says that Jesus emptied himself or made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And then it goes on to say, and, and being found in the likeness of men, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. But the point that I want to get there is that word emptying at the, at the beginning of verse 7 is not saying he emptied himself of being divine, as we already alluded to, but it's Paul saying he laid down his rights. That's what that word literally means. He laid down his rights as God. And so one of the things that is important to remember, now Jesus had rights before God. You and I don't ultimately possess, no matter what we do, no matter how faithful we are in serving God, we can never ultimately come to God and say, okay, I've been so faithful, now you owe me faithfulness in return, or you owe me some specific blessing or some specific privilege should be mine because of my faithfulness. We don't get to do that. We have to let go of the right that God owes us anything. He gives us many good things, but he owes us no good thing. Humility is often steeped in the, under, in the understanding of that reality. Look at how Luke chapter 7 says it, or 17, sorry, not Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, this is Jesus talking, and he says this, uh, verses 7 through 10. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep 
say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So that's Jesus giving us some instruction about how we should think about our service to God. Um, now, God is a kind master, and he's good, but Jesus is telling this story and giving us this illustration to remind us that no matter how much service we give to God, at the end of the day, all we would say to God is to say, we were unworthy to even be serving you. You owe us nothing. You don't owe us in this scenario. You don't owe us the opportunity to eat before you eat or we've worked a long, hard day. A servant doesn't do that. A servant just says, I take care of the master. That's what I do. That, that's all a servant does. A servant says the master's will, the master's wishes, the master's needs. That's what I, that's what I deal with. That's what I do. And at the end of the day, I don't count it. I don't count the master to have been privileged that I would serve him. I count myself privileged to have served the master. That's what Jesus is saying, right? That's why when he says, go, go to the mission field. Go live in a place where you didn't imagine you might live. Go serve a people that you might find particularly difficult to serve. Your response is to say, oh, yes, please, may I? It's my great delight to serve. We have to empty ourselves of the idea that we have any entitlement before God. He owes us nothing. He gives us many good things, but he owes us no good thing. The last observation is that pride is a failure to trust God. Pride is a failure to trust God. I'll just summarize Luke 14, uh, this section of teaching in Luke 14. Jesus is essentially, uh, he says to, to the disciples, look, when you show up at a dinner party, what you want to do is don't go sit at the place of honor. Go sit at the lowest seat. And when you sit at the lowest seat, then the host may come to you and say, hey, no, 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 come, come sit in a higher seat of honor. You shouldn't sit in the lowest seat. And says, that, that's going to be better than if you sit in the highest seat and then the master comes and someone more prestigious than you comes. And then he has to come and say, why don't you bump down a few seats, buddy? In fact, there's no other seats left. You need to go to the lowest seat. And Jesus is saying, don't, so don't, don't take the place of honor. Humble yourself and sit in the lowest seat. And then it's possible that the master will exalt you. And then he closes by saying this, one of many times that he says in the New Testament, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now what Jesus is teaching is not this strategy for getting the best seat, okay? He's not kind of going like feign humility just a little bit and then you'll get a better seat than you thought you'd get. What he's saying is the, the point of that and the point of a couple other texts that he gets to when he talks about that is to say, when you humble yourself, you are trusting God to put you in the seat that he wants you in. That might be the lowest seat. He might just leave you in that lowest seat and say, that's exactly where I want you to be. Or he might cause you to be put in a different place, in a different seat. He might say, I'm going to bump you up a couple seats because that's where I want you. But ultimately, the act of taking that lowest seat in this story, in this illustration, is the act of trusting the host to place you where he wants you to be. That's the point of that story. And humility, humility, putting pride to death, right, means trusting that God can put you right where he wants to put you. You don't have to strive and struggle and strain and cheat and do whatever to get the position that you think you deserve. God will place you. He's big enough. I promise you, he's big enough and strong enough. You believe it? 
He's big enough and he's strong enough to place you wherever he wants to place you. Now, here's what that means. If you begin to pray for humility, if you begin to pray for humility, here's how it changes all your perspective. Let's just take work, for example. When someone else gets promoted and you do not, do you know what happens when you've been praying for humility? You say, thank you, God, for answering my prayer for humility by not allowing me to be advanced at this point. And then when he does, guess what you know? He has steeped you in humility enough to now exalt you, at least to a degree. And this time now we know we'll all be exalted because we'll get to spend forever in the right presence of being right in the presence of God. That's our ultimate exaltation that we will receive as those who humble themselves to come to Jesus and then are exalted in eternity by being his his redeemed ones in glorified existence with him forever. But in the here and now, there are ways that this principle still plays itself out, that if we humble itself If we humble ourselves, then God will exalt us. He will place us where he wants us to be. And ultimately, pride is a failure to trust God to put us in the right seat, the one he deems we should be in. Okay, so let's quickly, because we're going to move to communion here, let's quickly hit these last three things. Just practical advice for growing in humility. If those are general observations about humility, then here are three things. And really just kind kind of list them and just elaborate on them very briefly. The first is this. You put to death the desire to be made much of. You put to death pride by making much of God. We already alluded to this, and I'm going to just refer you to Andrew Murray's little book if you want to sort of contemplate this. Um, because his, his argument is essentially, look, if you want to, the key to becoming humble is not that you would just beat yourself into submission and lower, 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 think less and less and less of yourself. The key is thinking more of God. The key is seeing how profoundly wonderful and good he is and to revolve your life around the journey of trying to know more and more how wonderful he is. And and as that happens, you become less concerned about yourself. You become uh, less self-aggrandized, less interested in promoting your own goodness and having people see it. And you find that you fish for compliments less. (laughs) You find that you're not so quick to offer the resume so that people know, oh yeah, I was... You know, all state in high school, that sort of thing. Nobody cares that you were all state in high school, just in case you were curious. <laughs> Number two, obsess over the humility of Christ. I use that word intentionally, obsess over the humility of Christ. And beg him to bring it to life in you in increasing measure. There's two parts to that statement, right? The first is that you would ponder, just go back to Philippians 2 again and again, but you can go anywhere in the life of Christ and you can see the humility of the one who, look, at the cross, what Philippians 2 is talking about, the one who was immortal died. At the cross, the one who deserved all praise and glory was condemned. The innocent one was condemned. At the cross, the humility of Christ. If you want to see humility, look no further than the cross. Go back to it again and again and marvel at the humility. Uh, There's a scholar that says it this way. He says, we talk about the fact that at the cross, Jesus, in the incarnation and with the cross, he left eternity and he left heaven and all the worship of heaven and all the glory that was his in heaven. And he took on human form and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that's a nice concept to us. But I want to remind us that we have no concept of what it was that he actually left. Jesus was experiencing it 
every moment of eternity, he was in complete adoration from all the angels and all the heavenly hosts and everything glorified him at all times. That's a, that's a theoretical idea to us. Jesus lived in that reality from eternity past to the moment of his incarnation and then chose to lay all that aside and come and take on humanity where no one worshiped him and no one said how wonderful he was. Not even the disciples could get it right. Even when they offered their best opportunities. Look, in Luke, at the, at the Last Supper, this is Jesus is getting ready to lay down his life. Do you know what the disciples are talking about? Which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Even those who came the closest were nowhere near recognizing what it was that Jesus had done and been. <coughs> Third one is this. It's really simple. Take every opportunity to serve others. Take every opportunity to serve others. And that doesn't mean, um, you know, just constantly being run ragged. But what it does mean is this. It means having an intentional practice of serving, a plan for serving, a way in which you revolve your life around serving others and not saying no to serving others just because it's inconvenient to you. If you want to grow in humility, that's how you do it. You pray and beg God, plead with him to put it in you. You marvel you obsess over the humility of Christ. You ponder the greatness of God and you take every opportunity to serve other people. And when you do that, you will watch humility flourish in your life.